Imagine if each morning when you wake up, you're smiling and looking forward to your day, knowing you are happy even while you're dealing with grief and loss. The Grief and Happiness Podcasts inspires, comforts, and supports you with each new episode. I'm Emily Zerothret, welcoming you to explore with me your life of endless possibilities. Aloha. I am so thrilled to be here today with John Polo. This is an amazing man who I've been following on Twitter and Instagram. And I, he just appeals to me so much because he's, he just comes across as so honest. And he says this sort of thing that I think a lot of us think and don't say out loud. And I haven't run into a lot of men who are working in grief. So I'm impressed that he's done that too. And as you know, my focus is on happiness as well as grief, that you can grieve and be happy at the same time. And he's demonstrated that to me, too. So I'm very happy to have him today. Good morning, John. Good morning. How are you today? I'm just wonderful. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me on today. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure, really. Can you tell us a little bit about you and how you came to do this work? Yeah. So really long story short, I met my future wife, Michelle, in high school, and we dated for a year. Um, We lived about two hours apart. We had a pretty bad breakup, and we lost all contact. Seven years later, she emailed me, and we talked for a whole year before she finally came to visit me again. And upon upon that visit, we both admitted to each other that we had always loved each other. So we reunited. We started a life together. Two and a half years after that, she got diagnosed with a horrible cancer. And she fought it for two and a half years before she passed away. She passed away in January of 2016. So about a month after she passed away, I was obviously kind of going a little bit stir crazy. In addition to this, the intense grief, right? And the despair and all of that. Like, I didn't know what to do with myself anymore. I didn't have my wife in the physical form with me. I wasn't a caretaker anymore. I didn't know what to do. And during her illness, I was using writing as a little bit of a healing tool for myself. So a month after she passed, I was talking to a friend and they suggested that I start a blog to talk about my grief. And I didn't really know what a blog was. Like I had no idea how to start a blog, but I Googled how to start a blog. And I started one. And that kind of led me on this path of working with people with grief. That's that's so cool. My whole journey here started with writing also. And it, it helps so much. What kind of writing did you do before you started your blog? What were you writing about or how did you use your writing? So I had never really used writing before in my entire life. My dad was diagnosed with cancer in 2007. And the day he was diagnosed, it was terminal cancer. I actually wrote his eulogy, which might seem weird to some to write it on the day he was diagnosed. But through that process, I found it very healing. For me, it was a thought, obviously he didn't know I was doing this, but it was a thought, if he doesn't make it, I'm going to honor him. So that was my first kind of like using writing as a healing type of experience. Throughout the course of Michelle's two and a half year cancer battle, I was incredibly bitter and I was incredibly angry to have loved her once at high school, lost her only to come back together the way we did, and then for her to get one of the worst cancers known to man so shortly after. 
and everything else that was happening in our life behind the scenes that I don't necessarily talk about yet. I was so angry and so bitter. And the last 10 days that Michelle was in hospice, she fell into a coma-like state. And when she fell into that coma, I started writing her eulogy. And then I started writing, as soon as I was done with her eulogy, I started writing a book about our full love story. And through that book about our full love story and through her eulogy, I began to see her and remember her as my wife, the woman that I love, the woman that I shared all these moments with and all this laughter with and all this love with. And she became that person again. She became that wife again and not just the wife that I was about to lose. So through those moments, that's when I began to find find that writing was a form of healing for me. That's fabulous. I, I really like that. I I've had two husbands die, and I didn't write a lot after the first one died, which kind of surprises me because I'm, I am a writer. I teach writing at the university, and I've written college textbooks, and it would have been a logical thing for me to do, but I just didn't think of it. And instead, I was kind of sitting by myself for way too long. And when I never dreamed I'd get married again, I had said that I wasn't interested. I wouldn't date. I just it wasn't going to happen. Right. But it did. (laughs) And I had an absolutely wonderful marriage with Ron. And that was great. And when he died, I was in a much better place because the whole time I had known him, we had really practiced living in the moment. And that was, uh, it made things so much better because in the moment, even when he was sick, he didn't necessarily feel that bad at that moment. So he just appreciated it when every moment that he recognized that that he was feeling okay. And after he died, I thought, okay, this time I'm going to write. And I started writing too a a lot. I I did the main thing that I wrote to start off with was letters to him. Nice. And I really liked that. And in my writing classes at the university, I teach a different kind of writing now, but in in those days when I was teaching the writing classes, one of my assignments was for the students to write their own eulogies. Mm-hmm. And they they learned so much from that. It was mm-hmm. it was not just about writing, but they learned about themselves in the process of doing that. So I, I love that you wrote the eulogies. I, I think that's just great. Yeah, I, I host a writing workshop. So one of the things I do is host a writing workshop. And I actually just did one last night. And out of all the workshops I host, I think that is probably the one that's always the most healing. Mm. The first time that I hosted that workshop, I didn't really want to. I had a cancer center in Illinois here ask me to come speak for them. And I said, sure, what do you want me to speak about? And they said, well, give us options. And I gave them like seven options and they wanted the writing workshop. And I'm thinking to myself, that's the one I don't want to do. (laughs) Um, But ever since then, it's always the most healing workshop that I do. Yeah. It allows people to really get into their thoughts and feelings in a way that nothing else does. Because when they're, when they're bouncing around in your head, they're not necessarily congruent. You know, they just kind of are scattered and some stick and some don't and some get overwhelming and it's not helpful. So the process of getting them out of your head and onto paper makes it so you've got more space to think about where you are right now and what you can do right now and and be able to put things in in perspective. Yeah, I mean, I always tell clients, we have so much in our head. 
right? We have all the craziness of the world and our finances and our stress and our children and our pets and our job. We have so much in our head, like we have to release that emotion. And some people don't necessarily want to because they're scared because, well, it's painful and it can be painful to express those emotions and release them. But usually what happens is a form of healing after you Mm -hmm. experience that pain. The other thing I found a lot, I don't know if you found it, is like people are like, well, I don't know where to start. I don't know what to say. And my tip is like, put the pen to the paper, literally put it on the paper and just write. Like, don't use your head too much. I feel like when we're using our head too much and we're writing about this type of stuff, I feel like we're taking away some of the authenticity Mm -hmm. from what is actually wants to come out. That's right. I, I agree with you on that. And that's a technique that, that I use with teaching writing too. When I was teaching on ground in the classroom, not online, like I, I do now. And I've, I've usually done kind of some of each, but now I'm totally online. But when I was on ground, the students knew the first thing they were going to do when they came in was to sit down, get out a notebook, even when we were in the com- computer lab, but get out a notebook and a pen and write whatever was in their head for like mm-hmm. seven minutes at the beginning right. of class. It didn't matter what it was. And I, I would give them credit for writing them. So I had to look to see that they'd actually written that <laughs> I, I didn't, it didn't matter what they wrote. Right. It really didn't matter at all. And that way they could get rid of whatever they came into the classroom with, because generally when they'd walk in the classroom, they'd go, Oh, I'm late again, or I'm going to meet so-and-so for lunch. And I didn't get my homework done in the other class. And I really need to study for my test in the other class. So I don't, I can't spend this time, you know, all that sort of thing. And once they write that all down, then it kind of clears the way. And they're always amazed by that. I'd always have them use it for test anxiety too. That if they, whenever I'd ask the class, do you have test anxiety? Everybody raised their hand. (laughs) Right. <laughs> so I'd say that, well, what you do is study like you usually would for the test, learn everything you need to learn. And then when it's time for the test, get there about 15 minutes early and get out your notebook and write everything that your brain's telling you right at that moment. Right. Right. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. They, they were always flabbergasted at how their grades improved in all their other classes because they were taking this one. So right. Right. It, it really, really works. And yeah. I, I love that technique. Yeah. One of the things that you said at the beginning of the podcast that really struck me was that you don't find a lot of men talking about their grief. Mm -hmm. And whenever I tell the story of how my career started, because it did start, I had no intention of writing books or becoming a coach or anything. I was just starting a blog a month after my wife passed to talk about grief. And the reason I always tell people, the reason I think it took off is yes, I think I'm a good writer and all that. But I don't think the world was used to a then 31-year-old man being so open and vulnerable. Mm -hmm. That's not something that the world is used to seeing. So I think it resonated with people more that way. I'm sure it did. As I said, that's kind of why you appeal to me so much is this, your truthfulness comes through with whatever you say. And and you say whatever you need to say right then. It's, It's not all lollipops you know it's it's real it just feels so real and I think that that's what people who are grieving frequently seek is somebody who tells them the truth right I think one of the truths another thing that you said that struck me was when you mentioned like how we can grieve and be happy at the same time Mm -hmm. and I'm not beating up on society when I say this I think it's just what I've seen like 
society as a whole, as a whole, like just doesn't understand grief and healing. And to me, people see if someone doesn't know me and they come on my page and they don't realize I'm six years out and this is kind of like a profession for me now, the writing and all that, they might see a sad post that I make. And maybe it's not even a post about right now. Maybe I wrote it three years ago and I'm speaking to those people who are still feeling that way. But they think that, you know, that's where I am. Or if I post something happy, they think, oh, well, that's where he is. You know, he's quote unquote over it, even though we never get over it. They don't realize that like this all lives together, right? I always say we can grieve as we move forward and we can move forward as we grieve. Like there are days where I'm incredibly happy, but I still very much miss my wife, right? That void is still there. And there's days where the grief is still there, like intense, but I still find smiles on those days as well. Like it all lives together. And I just wish more people kind of knew that. And for grievers, they knew that that's okay. And that that's normal. Mm -hmm. That's right. There are two things there. Well, I love that you say move forward. Because that's that's how I, I phrase it when I'm talking about it. Because so many people say, well, aren't you over that yet? Or, right. you know, they, they expect you to get, get over grief as opposed right. to know that you're always going to grieve whoever you loved. If you loved them, they're always going to be with you that you're the rest of your lifetime. And you don't get over it. And it, to me, it just, you know, makes me kind of tense up when somebody says something like get over it. Right. And the other thing is people judging or comparing by whatever it is that that you've said or what you demonstrate. I know last week on Instagram, I wrote a post that said I had heard that having a husband die was one of the greatest stressors in your life. And I had a woman write back to me. She was furious that I said that. She said, I lost my child, and that's worse than any of you, you losing your husband. And I, I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm really sorry you lost your child. And I understand that, but this is, there's no comparison. Right. Every single grief is its own right. entity. It, you, you can't compare any griefs. That was just a statement that I had heard, and I put it down to see what people think. And right. Why did I? <laughs> well, and look, you and I are both on social media and as amazing as social media can be, we also know it can be the quite the opposite, right? And you just said like, you said losing your spouse is one of the worst things you can, in- well, that's absolutely right. You mm-hmm. didn't post, hey, it's worse than losing a child. You said it's losing, it's one of the worst things you can. Mm-hmm. When I did my writing workshop yesterday, I said that, I said losing your partner is one Right, one of the worst experiences you can have here in the human experience. It just is. Mm-hmm. But every death, every loss is so incredibly unique that any type of comparison is just horrible. Even, you know, some people with, you know, how did they pass or how long did you have? Like, it, it's all uniquely horrible in its own way. For every person who spent 45 years with their person and then lost them, they know nothing else. And that's horrible for every person who was four months out. Maybe they waited and waited and waited. And then then they met the love of their life and they only had four months and they didn't get those 45 years. So it's not that one is better or one is worse. It's just they're both uniquely horrible. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think when, when we all can look at the experience of grief 
like that, that, that it is a unique experience and we can support each other better that way. Right. And my, my whole thing is about support, you know, honoring where you are. I'm not in your shoes. I know when I, I first started teaching uh, writing through grief, I was after Ron died and I'd been writing a lot and thought, well, I can help other people with the kind of writing that I'm doing. And because we hadn't lived here that long, I didn't know anybody on the island who was dealing with grief besides me. So I thought, how am I going to do this? It was before the pandemic and everybody wasn't doing everything online. So I created a meetup group and had people come over to my house. And it was amazing. And the thing that I think surprised me the most, since I was dealing with the loss of my husband's, I was kind of expecting that it was going to be all women dealing with the loss of their husbands. Well, it wasn't. (laughs) We had uh, death of children, death of mothers, that mother especially, there were were a couple people that that were dealing with that. Death of a relationship. Mm -hmm. And one person that came in just said they had so much loss in their life in general that they were grieving a lot. And it wasn't about a specific person. It's that they just seemed like everything they touched, they lost. And so they were right. dealing with that. So there's all different kinds of loss for different reasons. And we can all support each other in whatever kind of loss it is. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, and that's one of the biggest things is that people who are grieving, whatever the loss is, we live in a society where many people feel like they don't have any support. Right. And this kind of goes into, well, why though? Why don't they feel like they have any support? Well, people don't validate their pain. They don't feel seen. They don't feel heard. They don't feel like their pain is being respected. I'm a big believer in like not trying to fix people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny because doing the coaching for a living, like it's kind of become a part of me. I mean, there was always a part of me being a fixer and now it's even a bigger fixer. And Michelle passed six years ago. I dated a decent amount. My last two exes, since Michelle passed, they both had to tell me like John's and it wasn't about grief. It was just like about their life, their career, whatever they were venting about. They're like, John, stop trying to fix me. (laughs) So now I'm a big believer that like with people in my personal life, friends or dating or family, I will ask them, do you want an ear or do you want my help? Right. And I never expected anyone to really help me in, in a big way when Michelle passed. There's only so much hope you can give to someone grieving their spouse. And I certainly never expected anyone to fix me. What I wanted was someone to sit with me and allow me to sob uncontrollably if that's what I had to do, right? That's all I wanted, to be kind of seen and heard and supported through it. Yes. Yeah. That, And I think that that's what most people need to have. It's not that they need to to do anything to change you. And and I think they're looking for change because they want you changed. They want to hold you back or they want you to not be sad or Mm -hmm. they want to talk about anything else except this. And people who tell me that I say, okay, don't talk about anything else except that. Just listen. You don't have to talk. Listening can be one of the best things you can do for someone who's grieving. Yep. And they don't have to say anything. It's okay if you both just sit there together yep. and, and hold space, be, be yep. a presence for the person. 
And I think that's contrary to what, what most people think and that they're expecting to have to actively do something to actively make a change. And that's not always the desirable even outcome. Right. Even telling someone, I, I don't know what to say, that's more helpful than delivering some kind of platitude or whatever. I remember it was about two years after Michelle passed. It was Memorial Day. I was just having an incredibly horrible day. It was definitely one of my worst days since she passed. And long story short, I ended up going to my sister's house. I pulled up in front of the house and I couldn't go in. So there was a hotel a few blocks away. I literally went outside of the hotel in my car and like just sat there for an hour and like was just sobbing. And finally, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going to try to go. And I opened and I went and I rang the bell and my sister answered the front door. And her bedroom is like right off of the front door. And I kind of nodded to her to like come with me into the bedroom. Now, my sister and I have never been particularly close. I mean, you know, a normal relationship, never, never, never had an issue, never super close, just kind of a normal relationship. And I just started to sob in that bedroom, like sob without the ability to stop. And all she did was rub my back while I was sobbing. That was the most helpful thing she could have done in that moment. Not say anything, not try to fix it, just sit with me in that pain. That, oh, I'm so glad that you said that because people just, they don't realize that. And especially when something happens that's not real close to whatever the incident was, when it gets out a ways, when they can just give you space when you need it. I just had that happen to me recently. My husband has been gone wrong for six and a half years now. And we we got married in kind of an interesting circumstance because I never felt or didn't feel unmarried to Jacques after he died. I know they say from death do your part, but it, I just, I didn't feel like if, if I had to fill out a form, I didn't feel like I was single. I couldn't, I couldn't just right. write single there. I didn't feel that way. So I was, I was really kind of surprised when I started dating Ron and I, I talked to him about this feels funny to me because this is how I feel about my husband. And he was, he was accepting of that and it was okay. So it took me a while to agree to marry him. We were together for a few years before <laughs> I said it. Yeah. And what happened was the day after Christmas in 2010, I looked at the calendar and I said to him, look, the New Year's Day is going to be one, 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 one. Wouldn't that be a cool wedding date? And he said, yes, mm -hmm. I'll make the arrangements. So <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> we got married really quick. <laughs> yeah. And it and it was it was fine, you know, that it was beautiful, actually. But this year I have just a couple of friends. There's I think about six of us that that get together every we get together Friday to exchange produce from our yards. Mm -hmm. And one of them wanted to have us come over and have uh, New Year's Day together with her in the afternoon and just have some food and be socially distanced and not anybody else. So there weren't too many, you know, doing all the, the right things. And I had told her I was going to come. And that day, it just hit me that it was not only 1111, but it was the 11th anniversary of our marriage. Right. And I, that probably sounds silly that all those ones together would make a difference, but it just hit me hard. Mm -hmm. 
And there was no way I could go to that. And I knew she was going to wonder what happened since I said I would be there. So at, when I got to the point where I was composed enough, and it was after everybody had, had left her house, I, I just wrote her a text because I didn't even want to call her and try and talk to her. Right. She was very, very understanding and was grateful that I told her what happened because she was concerned that I, I didn't show up. But I was so surprised that after all this time, the just coming across something like that would kind of knock the wind out. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's something that, like, I always say we didn't just lose that, lose them and like, we didn't lose them in the past. Like, okay, mm-hmm. Michelle passed away. It was six years ago almost. Yeah, but there are things in the present moment that bring the void, bring her absence to the forefront. There are things that are going to happen in the future where I'm, I feel like I lose her all over again in certain moments, right? I always say that like after a truly profound loss, grief never fully goes away. It just changes. It evolves. It continues to look different. And it continues to surprise us as well, <laughs> both good and bad. Like sometimes there are dates where I think I'm going to be really upset. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, this is going to be a hard day and I'm fine. And then, as you know, like sometimes it will be the most ridiculous thing. Like you're at the grocery store and you pass the thing that they always, you know, would eat. And it's even though it's been six years or whatever, it hits you in the heart. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just unpredictable. And it's OK. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's the one thing I found with people uh, when they're doing their writing that that they'll write something and, and when they're talking about it afterwards, they'll start expressing some kind of guilt feelings. And I said, no, it's, it's okay. What, whatever your experience is, okay. It's your experience. It's not anybody else's. And it's good for you to recognize that when you write about it, that, that was a good thing that you discovered. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Once, once you discover it, then you can think about it. You can deal with it and, and be able eventually to move forward when you're ready. Right. I remember I was going to, I started going to hospice bereavement after Michelle passed. So before I had a blog, before I did any of the things I do now for my career and the individual who facilitated the group gave us pen and paper. First time I went and said, write to your, this was a widowed support Mm -hmm. group. So write to your deceased partner. And I took the pen to paper and a lot of anger started to come out. That is not what I anticipated coming out. If you had asked me, I thought it would have been all lovey-dovey stuff. But it was a lot of anger. And it was basically expressing my anger towards her for ruining the relationship in high school and us losing those eight years together. There was nothing wrong with that. That had to be obviously filtered and expressed, right? The other thing I see a lot, and I'm assuming you do too, is that people also feel guilt for being happy. Yes. Right? They'll feel guilt for the smiles, for the laughter, for if they start dating again, finding love again, for whatever. And, you know, that is something that absolutely has to be worked through in whatever capacity they want to work through it. Because if not, it just creates the option, the opportunity to really self-sabotage yourself for the rest of your life. Yeah, people, people just... They feel this obligation to be sad, that they're, right. they're betraying their loved one by not being sad and crying all the time. And that's, that's a, a tough one to get them past, because when they get firmly entrenched in that, it's really hard to not do that. 
And I've, I've found that with, with what I'm doing, I'm a, I'm a very positive person. I, I believe in focusing on, on the positive. And th- this isn't the me I always was. <laughs> I was mm-hmm. pretty intense because I did a lot throughout my life. And if I, if I wasn't really focused, I couldn't get it all done. And so I, I didn't smile a whole lot. And I don't really, I, I didn't feel like I was unhappy. I just didn't really demonstrate that that much. And when I'm working with, with people now and they start getting in this thing, if they start to smile about something and then I can see that they all of a sudden, oh, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. We talk about it right then and mm-hmm. say, it's, that's okay. Yeah. It's absolutely okay. And don't, don't judge yourself because we, we talk about not judging other people, but one of the first people you need to not judge is yourself and you're right. the first person you need to forgive. Yep. Because you, you can say, oh, had I taken him to the doctor sooner or had I, I done something, then this wouldn't have turned out this way. And and I, I encourage him to turn it around with things. I, I know with uh, Jacques, he, was, he had a heart situation and we were dealing mostly with his heart situation. But he also started developing some digestion problems. And we went to mm-hmm. a gastroenterologist and he wanted him to have... The exam, the Lord GI exam and a colonoscopy. There we go. (laughs) Sorry. But the doctor wanted him to have a colonoscopy and he was mad and he expressed his anger in the doctor's office. I I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that crap. I don't want it. And and I said, Jacques, wait, look at me. You don't have to do it. You can say no. And he he was shocked that I said that. And Mm -hmm. I said, what difference does it make? If you want to have it and you want to go forward with any treatment that comes from it, great. If you don't want to, that's your choice. Right. And it's okay. And he was so relieved. He talked to me about that several times. He said, I, he didn't think he would have thought to make that choice for himself mm-hmm. if I had not pointed it out to him. And at the time I thought, now do I feel guilty about preventing him from getting some medical care that maybe he needed. And, I, and as I thought about it, I thought, no, I really don't. Right. And I'm okay with it. And he was okay with it. And we need to be okay with ourselves when we realize that we smiled about something that made us happy. Right. And that's okay. And that we cried because we had a memory that made us sad. And that's okay. Right. There's a piece that I wrote. It's just two sentences or something. I, I'm going to try to remember it here. I think it says... I know my deceased spouse understands my pain, but roots for my joy. Right. I mean, that's really how I feel. A lot of people are shaming themselves. If they have a bad day, you know, let's just say their deceased spouse is, is named Joey. Oh, Joey would be so disappointed in me. Right. Joey would be so disappointed in me. That's how they feel. But then they have a good day and they feel guilty about smiling. And I'm just like, okay, now we have to put the brakes on this. I understand right? I got it. Let's talk it through. I'm not going to preach to you how you should feel. I'm going to try to help you, but you're not, you're setting yourself up for failure any which way. If you're beating yourself up during your bad, during the the difficult moments, and you're also beating yourself up during moments when you're smiling, when are you not beating yourself up? And that we have to become a, our own biggest supporter when we're trying to grieve properly or grieve our own way and rebuild. Like it becomes critical that we not always put ourselves down in every single way. That, oh, that's beautiful. 
Yes, I agree with you wholeheartedly on that. If, if we can help people open their, their minds and their hearts to realize that, it would solve so much. It would comfort so much. It's really beautiful. You know, the other thing I wanted to say, because I think this is really important, is I don't know about you. I'm interested. You know, obviously, you've had this happen twice to you. For so long, when I say for so long, maybe the first 15 months or so, I felt like I could only feel close to Michelle during moments of intense pain. And then what I have found here as time has passed, as I've evolved, is I actually feel closer to her now during moments of happiness, during joy, during laughter. Like I feel closer to her now during those moments than I do during moments of pain. It has completely just flipped itself on its head. Yeah, I, that's so cool because that's, that's really the way I feel too. And I know with both of them that both of them would be not happy with me if I sat around and cried for the rest of my life. And both of them were basically happy people and love to laugh and love to smile. And when I can be in that place with them, sometimes I almost hear their laughter in the background when something really funny mm-hmm. or cool happens. And it's, it's reassuring. It, it feels just really, really good. So I think the whole thing of focusing on the joy, focusing on the happiness that you can have in your life is the one thing that really can help you move forward and not forget them, but just move forward and embrace them on the way and embrace those memories. I've had, One of the things that I've had since I, I had this experience twice, I've had people question me about it like, you say that you're grieving both of them right now. How could you love two people at the same time? And generally my answer to that, depending on who it is, is how many children do you have? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, do, do you love one child and not the other? Or, or do you love one the most? And so you focus just on that child? We're, right. we're meant to love. We're meant to love the whole world. You know, right. there's, there's no reason that you can't love two or 10 or 50 people at the same time. Right. And focus on that. Yeah. I have a, like a bunch of different analogies and ways that I try to explain this to clients. I, I just thought of a new one. I've been trying to do a video on it, but I can't like get the right words out. So I haven't put it out yet. But basically, like I let's say you have a cup. OK, you have a cup. And when I talk about the cup being full, I'm not talking about with liquid. My love for Michelle is what represents that cup being full. So obviously when she was alive, that cup was completely full, you know, as full as it could be. It's still just that is full. It has never gone down, even though it's almost six years out. Now I am dating. Let's say that I fall in love again. The love I have for this new person, it's not going to take away from Michelle's cup. The love I have for the new person doesn't touch Michelle's cup. What happens is they get their own cup. <laughs> uh-huh. They get their own cup. I love that. That that's a beautiful way to express that because that's something that people just don't get. But that that really shows it that the fullness of both relationships is is a beautiful thing. Right. I mean, like you said, if you have two children or if you have eleven children, do you love? the two children more than the 11 children? No, like love just has the the capacity to overflow. Mm -hmm. 
And, and the whole thing is to keep it flowing. Right. You know, when we all do that, then it just makes a huge difference in our world. Yep. Wow. Well, I have enjoyed this talk with you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you, you get it. You know, the positivity of, of working with grief. I, mm-hmm. I think it's so important and it's it's so nice to know that that you're out there with the, the same kind of message that I have is, you know, take good care of yourself and love yourself and feel love, express love. And there's, you can never have too much love. Right. It, it can be genuine, even when there's tons of it, it's yep. still very genuine. Yeah. Well, is there anything else you'd like to say before we go? No, just thank you so much for having me on. I've enjoyed it. Uh, uh, I have too. And I'm going to have all of John's information in our show notes so that you can get a hold of him and uh, get whatever you would like to get from him. He's, uh, as I, I said, his, his, both his Instagram and Twitter, I enjoy very much. I encourage you to go to those, but there's other opportunities too. And I think that our, our main message here is you can be happy and grieve at the same time. And I'm grateful to, we're both grateful, I'm sure, to share that with you. So we'll see you next time. Do you want more comfort, support, and happiness? Join the Grief and Happiness Alliance. Visit my website at lovingandlivingyourwaythroughgrief.com and read my book, Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, rate it, review it, and binge on all our episodes on grief and happiness. I can't wait to welcome you back to another episode.